Hello, and welcome to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today's episode is on education, and specifically corruption and conspiracy in the field of education. So what we are going to be going over today will start off with a little bit from Plato and Aristotle. I figured you might as well start at the beginning and talk about some of the ideas that they first stated. Then we'll get into the Prussian education model and the PhD system that leads into the current education system that we're under today. The next specific thing will be on the Reese Committee investigation, and that was an investigation that covered the big foundations. Specifically, we're going to focus on Carnegie and the Rockefeller Foundation. So we'll look at those. We'll look at the Gary Plan and scientific management in general and how that got infused into the school system and the way of teaching and the methods of teaching and the structures. Then we'll get into government funding for schools, marketing in schools, standardized testing. We've got a lot that we'll cover through there. So let's get started at the beginning. And the beginning would be ancient Greece for us today. Here we are going to start with Plato and also Aristotle. So let's start off with a quote from Plato out of The Republic. He wrote, and I quote, Do not train a child to learn by force or harshness, but direct them to it by what amuses their minds, so that you may be better able to discover with accuracy the peculiar bent of genius of each. So he's basically saying that you can't force somebody to learn. If they don't want to learn, they're not going to learn, and there's no way to force them to. So why even try? You need to figure out what they're actually interested in, and that is how you can teach them, which makes sense. Next, let's see what Aristotle had to say, and this comes out of his book, Politics. He wrote, It is manifest that education should be one and the same for all, and that it should be public and not private. Not as at present, when everyone looks after his own children separately and gives them separate instruction of the sort which he thinks best, The training of things which are of common interest should be the same for all. Neither must we suppose that any one of these citizens belongs to himself, for they all belong to the state, and each of them a part of the state, and the care of each part is inseparable from the care of the whole. There can be no doubt that children should be taught those useful things which are really necessary, but not all useful things, for occupations are divided into liberal and illiberal, and to young children should be imparted only such kinds of knowledge as will be useful to them without vulgarizing them. The object, also, which a man sets before him, makes a great difference. If he does or learns anything for his own sake or for the sake of his friends, or with a view to excellence, the action will not appear illiberal. But if done for the sake of others, the very same action will be thought menial and servile. The received subjects of instruction, as I have already remarked, are partly of a liberal and partly of an illiberal character. So you see that uh, Plato and Aristotle both have views of education that are spot on in some ways and are way off in others. So I didn't really get as big of a quotation from Plato, and he had a lot more to say about it. Uh, Basically, Plato said that the state should control all education, but he had more of a eugenics view on it where 
you should be able to separate out those who are excelling, those who are more intelligent, those who are more inclined towards philosophy was his ideal. And those are the children that you should educate the most and most thoroughly, and they will have the most potential, and you basically separate out the elite, and those are the ones that you teach the way that he had described in this quote I read before. He talked about how you can't force someone to learn, they have to want to learn, you figure out what they're interested in. Well, he talks in another section about how you identify who the elite are, and that is one of the ways. You don't force them to learn, you just see who actually tries and who seeks to be virtuous and to learn on their own, and that's how you know that you have someone with potential. Then you take all those individuals with potential and you group them together and control everything they're going to learn through the state. Not only do you control how they learn and what they learn in general, but he actually went so far as to say they shouldn't learn much from the poets and they shouldn't learn much from, he called music. Music would be poetry. It would be stories. It would be what we think of as music, basically the arts in general. And he wanted to censor the majority of the arts because, in his opinion, they were lies. A lot of what is written in the, the poets and in the ancient stories is obviously not true. And so to him, if you are teaching children things that aren't true, you're teaching them to lie, which is not virtuous, and that's not what we want. You are also teaching them things like rebellion and a lot of these other concepts that come out of these stories, and he did not want society infected by those things. So he was he had the idea that you should be very controlled with what you expose children to. Now, Aristotle wasn't quite as extreme. He actually said that Plato was being a little extreme in these areas, and he kind of gives a few rebuttals in politics um, relating to Plato's work, The Republic. But Aristotle did have many of the same ideas in that he felt that, as I read in the quote, that the state should be in control of education, that you should teach everybody the same way and to an extent the same things. But he talks about the illiberal versus the liberal education. He still believes that same more eugenics mindset that you separate out the elite, you separate out those with a lot more potential for ruling the society and being at the top of society, and those ones get the liberal education for the things that they will need, and the rest of them get the basic kind of low-end, more menial education so that they can do the things that they're going to do, you know, be their little craftsmen and work on their farms and, you know, serve the elite, basically. And that that's what you should do for the common kids and the common people. But all of this should be, it should be set up and run by the state and controlled by the state and controlled by the elite. And then you are training and creating more elite out of this system that can then rule over and control the education system as they get older, and that's how you do it. It's a big circle. Now, Aristotle and Plato also both talk about uniformity, how you want all of your citizens to be taught to act the same way and to respond the same way to stimuli and to know roughly the same stuff. Because if you have uniformity in your population, in your society, they're a lot easier to predict and a lot easier to control. 
it doesn't leave many wild cards out there. Now, you do want, like they've said, to separate out the elite and those with a lot of potential, and they may be some wild cards and they may have some other ideas, but hopefully you've controlled them enough and steered them enough through the education system that they will be in line with your philosophies and ideologies. And the other, probably 90% of the school population will be very uniform. They will think alike. They will act alike. They will like the same types of things. They will know the same types of things. And although their jobs may be different, one may be someone who mends clothes and one may be a blacksmith and one may work who knows, in a farm or wherever, their ideas, their ideologies, their philosophies, how they think, what they think, these types of things, even their hobbies, will be very similar. And so through that, the state can have a lot more control over what society is going to be like. So moving on from ancient Greece, we're going to jump up to the Prussian Empire. And In Prussia, they also had a similar view of the state. The Prussian education system was one that had some similar goals to what Plato and Aristotle had mentioned that we read. And so let me just go ahead and read part of an article that I found about the Prussian education system. And this is from the contrarian perspective that we usually approach everything with. And this one's from a man named Derek Baroni from May 2015, and this is about the Prussian education system. It gives a good overview. He said, and I quote, The Prussian education system, still used to this day in most countries worldwide, originated in the early 18th century as a way to instill absolute obedience and uniformity in the students under the guise of education. What the students wanted and thought was irrelevant— The Prussian education system was there to teach them minimal literacy and indoctrinate them into believing in the infallibility of the supreme authority, Prussian King Frederick William I at the time. The end result was a useful generic worker, readily replaceable and dispensable. Teachers acted as surrogate parents and had no mercy for the child and punished all mistakes ruthlessly for the purposes of destroying trust and instilling fear. The curriculum consisted of rote reading, writing, and memorization assignments that were meant to destroy the creativity and spontaneity. The grades themselves also weren't used to measure the child's knowledge, but rather the level of its obedience. The worst grade implied the child was rebellious and refused to follow given methods rather than it was stupid or inattentive. The highly structured layout of the classroom meant pupils were disconnected from one another and easily monitored, which again emphasized the atmosphere of distrust. Even the school bell, used to mark the end and beginning of each period, can be easily recognized as a conditioning method, later described as such by Pavlov in the late 19th century. Everything is absolutely dedicated to turning a person into a robot. Homework, dress codes, school uniforms, and so on— Perhaps the most accurate description of the kind of retardation this education produces is Kafka's The Trial, which was also, as a side note, a book written by a Prussian novelist, and it is very interesting. You should look it up. It's He's basically accused of a crime, but we're never told what the crime was. We're never told who the court is, and it's some like weird group that tries people in these 
strange court establishments, but it's not the official government. No one really knows who they are or what's going on. It's very weird, but you should look that up and it does relate. So moving on. This same system was eventually transplanted into the U.S. in 1843 and became the basis of its education system today. There were some minor changes. Instead of the king, the students were taught to obey the state, but everything else is left the same. As an added bonus, there's a solid layer of social justice warrior indoctrination that formed on top of that system in the last 150 years. So that gives a rough idea. I know I've talked about the Prussian education system before on the podcast, but basically you had this problem during the Napoleon Wars where the Prussians should have won some battles and they were losing. They couldn't figure out why. Turned out that at least the conclusion they came to was that their soldiers were too apt to think for themselves and they were not as obedient and compliant as They should have been in order to be good soldiers and fight wars the way they were supposed to. And so there was an education system that was developed in order to create good workers. And at the time, you started having more industrialized um, factories and work that was being done. And so you also needed a similar thing in your workers. It was no longer individual workers doing individual things by themselves, but you started to get some standardization. And so you wanted some standardized workers. So in order to create these standardized workers and standardized soldiers, they created an education system that would promote these traits and these personalities and these kind of universal ideas and actions and stimuli response mechanisms. So that's what they did. They created it, and it was very successful, actually. Um, To mention an aspect of war here, I've got a quote from Helmuth von Moltke, and he was a Prussian from the 1800s around this time, and he talks about war here in this quote. He said, quote, Eternal peace is a dream, and not even a beautiful one. War is part of God's world order. Within it unfold the noblest virtues of men, courage and renunciation, loyalty to duty and readiness for sacrifice at the hazard of one's life. Without war, the world would sink into a swamp of materialism. Further, I wholly agree with the principle stated in the preface that the gradual progress in morality must also be reflected in the waging of war. But I go further and believe that waging war in and of itself, not a codification of the law of war, may attain this goal. So he's basically saying that war is good for society. It helps mold society and guide society. This is also a theme that was mentioned by Plato and Aristotle as well, that war was very important for steering society and controlling society and molding society. Darwin talked about evolving society through conflict. Again, these are ideas that have been around for a long time, and they make their ways through the different circles of the intelligentsia of the time and of the culture, depending on when you're talking about and where. But it's all the same idea that war does help push society along and forces people to do these things. It talks about the virtues and courage and loyalty and sacrifice. These are the things that are promoted through war. However, when you talk about virtue and courage, if you're talking about it in reference to war, this is not 
courage and virtue in an individualized sense, like we are trying to be the best person we can be personally and virtuous to all those around us in our lives. No, this is in the sense of what happens in war and what you are to do in war. You are to follow orders and respect authority and sacrifice yourself for the man beside you or for the orders that your commander gave you, and you are supposed to do this obediently and readily. He said, readiness for sacrifice. You have to be ready to sacrifice yourself. You can't second think it. If Say like in World War One, when you had men in trenches and there were thousands of men in a trench and they were given the order to jump the trench and charge. Well, they just saw probably 10, 12, 100 charges that had happened before them where all of the men were mowed down by machine guns that were pointed right at them and they're told to do the exact same thing again. Well, they have to do it. And if they don't, they're not a very good soldier. So how do you get men to act this way? Because that is not rational. And that is not something that that really relates to life. It's, it's not part of the life cycle of making actions like this. That is the end of a life cycle when you make actions like that, when you knowingly are putting yourself in a situation where you will probably die. So how... Do you get people to act this way? That is the question. And as we are reading about here, the answer is the education system. You teach them. That's it. You teach them. You indoctrinate them. You brainwash them, whatever you want to call it. And that is how you get people to act this way. And it ends up being the same in the workforce where how do you get someone to just sit and do one repetitive task over and over and over again for the rest of their life in drudgery with basically no creativity, no further motivation, no nothing. Well, you've got to give them little motivations here and there. You give them a raise every now and then. And you secure their future by giving them a small option for retirement and some health care. And you've got to do things to make them compliant and to make them willing to do that because that is not normal human behavior to sit at one place, one location around the same people in probably a possibly windowless room in a giant building in a factory doing the same repetitive assembly line tasks over and over and over again. That's not normal. That is not human nature throughout all of history. But since the Industrial Revolution, that is the most efficient way to produce goods and materialism. Materialism was mentioned in that last quote we read. He believes that if it wasn't for war, materialism would take over. I would argue that war has taken over and materialism has taken over. So we got both. Wonderful. So the point is that it is not within our nature as human beings to act in some of the ways that we do act in our lives. And even just the structure of how our lives are done we no longer try to take care of ourselves. Oftentimes we would prefer to work a few more hours at our job in order to make more money to pay somebody else to take care of the things that we need to do instead of us just taking care of the things we need to do and working less at our jobs. And so instead of, you know, mowing the lawn, if you're a perfectly able person to do that physically and everything, and you have the ability, then you could do that instead of working an extra hour at your job to make the money to pay somebody else to come over to your house and mow your yard. And so it's the same with maybe growing vegetables or 
who knows what, raising chickens or mowing your yard or cleaning your house or I don't know. There's just all different kinds of things that we pay for, and it's part of this materialistic culture, but we wouldn't have to. We could technically do these ourselves. And in order to pay for them, we need more money, which means we have to work more, which means we have traded the actions of taking care of ourselves and our things. We traded that for our time at our job, at our profession. And so we are giving up our ability to take care of ourselves and honing those skills and working on those even just basic abilities in order to work more and make more money to get somebody else to do it. And that's really not the way humanity has gone until now. And to an extent, specialization is something that is good and it's necessary and division of labor is very important because I may be better than anyone else at doing a certain task and so it makes more sense for me to spend time doing that task I'm really good at and not wasting my time at all these other things. However, we still should, as human beings, be able to take care of ourselves and our families. And so when we get past the point of not even doing some of these basic things, of taking care of ourselves and our household and our families, then we've kind of gone a little bit too far. And we've sacrificed not only these skills and these things that we need to be doing to take care of ourselves and our families, but we've also sacrificed those relationships, that time with our family. If you are doing a project in the yard with your kids, that's not just getting a project done. And yes, it's probably less efficient than hiring someone to do it. But You're building a relationship there. You're teaching your kids. You are getting a lot more out of that than the completion of said project. And we're missing out on that a lot in culture today. So, end rant, back to Prussia. With the Prussian education system, you had the creation of the PhD. And there was no other place in the world to get a PhD except for in Prussia. So if you wanted the highest level of education, you had to go to Prussia to get it. Now, their educational reforms were in the early 20th century, and they focused on the humanities and on philosophy. They moved away from the trivium and quadrivium. So we've talked about that in previous episodes as well, the trivium of grammar, logic, rhetoric, where you're basically learning how to learn, you're learning how to think things through, think critically, dialectic learning, um, a lot of discussion and debates, and the quadrivium is an expansion of that more specifically and more advanced. But the Prussian system moved away from these ideas and moved towards more of a standardized, set, obedience-based, rules-based, memorization-based education system, because that's what suited the goals they wanted to achieve the most. And so, another aspect of this is that almost all the funding shifted from being coming from the families and from the parents of the kids to coming from the state. The government funded all of these educational programs for the most part, and therefore, usually you can follow the money, and wherever the money comes from, that's where the power comes from. And so, yes, the government had most of the power and authority over what these kids were learning, what the system was like, who was teaching, all that kind of stuff. So, at this time, like I said, the only place to receive a PhD 
and to get this higher education accreditation was in Prussia. So any teachers that were going to teach at the university level worldwide and they wanted this accreditation would have to go to Prussia and receive it there. Anybody who is part of the elite class or in a noble family, and this is all around the world, if they wanted their children or they wanted themselves to get this type of education, they went to Prussia to get it because that was the only place. Now, I think France had one place where you could get a PhD early on before a lot of other countries adopted it, but it was started by a Prussian teacher and it was all the same Prussian model. Um, and you do start to see this program spread all around the world because, like I said, in order to get a PhD, you had to go here. Well, what happened once someone got a PhD in Prussia? Well, they went back home, of course. And what did they do back home? Well, oftentimes they were teachers. So then they got into the education system at whatever country that they lived in. And of course, they had new ideas on how that education system should perform and what should be taught. They had new ideas about philosophy specifically, and those ideas began to spread. The philosophies of people like Kant and Hegel were these Prussian philosophies that changed some commonly thought ideas at the time. So you're starting to get the ideology of not having absolute truth and not having absolute morality, and things aren't what they seem. Reality may not even be what it seems. And so you get this, uh, I, I think of it as a strangeness that starts to infect the minds of these people because you no longer have good and bad. You never, you don't have true and false. You don't have these basic aspects of how you think and how you think about things and about concepts and make decisions. You don't have this. You don't have a framework anymore because these Prussian philosophers are basically saying that that doesn't truly exist. We can't prove it, therefore it doesn't exist. And so, since there is no such thing as morality and as truth, then truth is what you make of it. Truth is what you say it is. Truth is personalized, and so is morality. And so, we also have the rise of eugenics, which we have talked about earlier on. We'll probably do an episode on later. And yes, if you don't have morality, then eugenics is a... Yeah, very reasonable and logical way to approach society and the human race as a whole. We have the ideas of Darwin and Galton that start to come up after a little while, and these also influence uh, other countries. So if you look at the elite universities in America and when they were founded, the majority of them were actually founded within about 30 to 50 years of the ideas of Darwin and Galton being released, the ideas of the evolution of the human race, that mainly only the elites are actually evolving and that the commoners in the human race aren't really evolving. They actually are possibly going to be devolving from here. We need to watch out for this, that evolution of the species is very important and that the black race and the Irish and all these different ethnicities that they believed were inferior 
they needed to be kind of shut down and put aside. And the elite, mainly white Caucasian um, elite groups, the nobles and such, they were the ones that were actually evolving and that we needed to focus on. So going back to the elite schools in America, most of these elite schools and a lot of boarding schools, even down to the high school level, were started in this atmosphere, in the milieu of these ideas and these philosophies. And the thought is that if you were an elite, aristocratic type person that had wealth, that was well-educated, and you wanted what's best for your children, and you also believed these ideas that were coming out of this Prussian philosophy and the ideas of Darwin and Galton and people of this nature, you believe all this stuff and you want what's best for your child, what are you going to do? You don't want them to start breeding with you know, this common girl down the road because you want your son to marry another elite human being so that their children can be even better and we can evolve the race and they're going to be well-educated and intelligent and... Yeah, this is what you want for your children. Most people want what's best for their children. And if you believe these philosophies and ideologies, then that is what's best for your children. And again, there's no such thing as morality or ethics. That's all relative according to what you believe. And so under that mentality, there's nothing necessarily wrong with segregating out some elite and making sure that they breed together and get together. Well, how do you do that? You can't tell your children who they're going to marry and who they're going to fall in love with and who they're going to hang out with. But if you have boarding schools and elite colleges where pretty much the only people that go there are people with a lot of money and that are of this elite class, and that's where you're kids spend their teenage years and early adult years, well, that's usually where they fall in love. That's usually where they meet the people that they spend their lives with. And so this is a tool that is used and was used at the time to promote these ideologies and give them a physical form where they can actually take place and evolve and continue and follow these thoughts of Darwin and Galton and the Prussian philosophers and all of those people. So along with having these as repositories for the elite classes and them mixing and molding together and breeding together, you also have the fact that these colleges were usually presided over by people with a PhD from Prussia. Usually the psychology departments, especially, and everything in the humanities, uh, they were all headed by people from either Prussia itself or people that were educated under the Prussian system. And so you get these same ideas and philosophies and ideologies that just continue to spread and that's what's taught in these top universities. And so people coming out of the top universities are the ones who teach others and so on and so on and so on. So you get the point here. And that is the Prussian education system. For another example of the spreading of these ideas, we had in Japan around this time some Japanese people that came over, uh, went through the Prussian education system and were so impressed that what ended up happening is Japan ended up adopting the Prussian constitution. And so they basically took the Prussian constitution and the ideas of how to run the state 
and translated them into Japanese, and Japan adopted that. And so you see that this is definitely something that is spreading around the world as far as these ideas go. And these spread all over the world, all through Europe, all through, like I said, Asia and into America. And this was the beginnings of what our modern education system is. This is still how we educate children and some of the ideas that are taught in universities And all of this stems from the Prussian education system. So now we need to move on to the next section. And it is the most interesting section. This is the highlight of the episode here. And that is the role of the foundations. So there are a few foundations. We're going to focus mainly on the Rockefeller and Carnegie foundations. And they have had a huge impact on the education system in general. So I am going to focus on some reading here again because I prefer to present you with primary sources so that you're not just getting my opinion. You are at a bare minimum getting somebody else's opinion and multiple people's opinions, but most of this is based on fact and reports. We'll read some quotes from congressional reports and things of that nature. There's an official investigation, congressional investigation. We'll read about the results of that. And yeah, so let me start off with a little bit about the foundations. And I'm going to start reading now and read some long sections here. In the first half of the 20th century, the Rockefeller Foundation and Carnegie Corporation undertook joint projects aimed at constructing an education system for black Americans in the South, as well as for black Africans in several British colonies. In 1911, the Phelps Stokes Fund was chartered with the purpose of managing, quote, the education of Negroes, both in Africa and the United States. This restrictive educational system for black Americans had already been institutionalized, beginning with the philanthropic endeavors of Wall Street bankers and northern industrialists and capitalists at several conferences in 1898. The education was constructed on the basis that, as one conference participant stated, quote, the white people are to be the leaders, to take the initiative, and to have direct control in all matters pertaining to civilization and the highest interest of our beloved land. History demonstrates that the Caucasian will rule, and he ought to rule. The conference resulted in what became known as the Tuskegee Educational Philosophy, which was decided upon by 1901. And as a side note here, I'm interrupting this reading. If you remember the Tuskegee experiment that we mentioned in a previous episode, where there was some government conspiracy going on related to none other than African Americans who were deemed as being less valuable than other citizens and scientifically tested upon. So, yeah. Continuing on with the reading. Three major decisions were taken at the conference. The first major decision was that, quote, it is necessary that the provision be made to train a Negro leadership cadre. For this purpose, then, it was concluded that a certain Negro that certain Negro colleges would be strengthened to educate a strong professional class, doctors, lawyers, ministers, which would be responsible for raising the general physical and moral level of the race in the segregated black communities. 
Second, it was decided that the Negro had been educated away from his natural environment and that his education should concern only those fields available to him. This key decision marked the formulation of the concept of a special Negro education. Third, it was decided that this special education, vocational and agricultural in focus, of the Negro had to be directed toward increasing the labor value of his race, a labor value which, not surprisingly, would see the white capitalist as chief beneficiary. Thus, in 1901, the fourth conference on the issue established the Southern Education Board. The following year, John D. Rockefeller established the General Education Board, a precursor to the Rockefeller Foundation, which, quote, alleviated any financial concerns which the planners of Southern Negro education might have experienced. The Rockefeller philanthropy had extensive influence on implementing the Tuskegee education philosophy, particularly through the Southern Education Board, of which it not only helped finance, but had a shared leadership. Eleven members of the Southern Education Board were also members of Rockefeller's General Education Board. Thomas Jesse Jones, a sociologist and blatant racist who joined the fund in 1912 and as late as 1939, had written that, quote, The southern states require the Negro at least for his services as a laborer. In 1917, the Phelps Stokes Fund published a two-volume survey of the Southern Negro education authored by Jones. The study maintained that the only education appropriate for the black man was that with a strong vocational agricultural bias. Academic literary education was perceived as dysfunctional for the black man because, one, it would open vistas that he could not attain in the rigidly segregated American social structure. Two, would fail to provide the appropriate skills that would make the black man a more productive worker or agriculturalist. Three, would seriously undermine the ability of the white ruling oligarchy to maintain its political hedge money in the face of demands for equality, which it was feared an academic literary education would engender. It had become evident at the end of the war that the colonial world was going to be dismantled and the dividing of the world into two superpower blocks, the United States and the Soviet Union, quote, signaled the beginning of the scramble to align the colonial territories to one or other of the emerging power blocks. As the Council on Foreign Relations had designated its Grand Area Project, the need for America to control the resources of strategic regions such as Asia, Latin America, and Africa, the major American foundations stepped to the forefront in constructing education for elites of the colonial territories that would produce leaders subordinate to Western interests. It was no small coincidence that the boards of the major foundations were made up of many prestigious policymakers and imperial strategists. One individual who perfectly represents this fact is John J. McCloy, who was a longtime member of the Council on Foreign Relations and had, throughout his long career, served as Assistant Secretary of War, Chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank, owned by the Rockefellers, High Commissioner to Germany following World War II, a trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation, and chairman of the board of trustees of the Ford Foundation, as well as president of the World Bank. Another similar individual is Robert McNamara, who in his career served as president of Ford Motor Company, president of the World Bank, secretary of defense during the Vietnam War, and trustee of the Ford Foundation. One Ford Foundation executive stated that, quote, the boards of the big foundations are controlled by members of the American business elite. 
Thus, foundation officials shared the view with American policymakers and business elites that changed in the colonial world, such as Africa, quote, must be evolutionary rather than revolutionary. By the mid-1950s, foundation officials had established a consensus with policymakers and business leaders regarding the importance of the developing world for the United States. In Africa, the Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Ford Foundations undertook massive programs, which led to, one, the creation of lead universities located in areas considered of geostrategic and or economic importance to the United States, two, an emphasis within these institutions on social science research and related manpower planning programs, three, programs to train public administrators, four, teacher training and curriculum development projects, and five, training programs which shuttled African nationals to select universities in the United States for advanced training and returned them to assume positions of leadership within local universities, teacher training institutions, or ministries of education. So that's the end of that long section there. And I wanted to get something that was a little more worldwide. So you kind of got the point that although I focus on America, America is not the only place with all these issues and with all this influence. And it is just the place I am focusing on. I have to focus on something and it's definitely the easiest and makes the most sense for me. But these things are worldwide. You have the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie's, the Ford Foundation, they, as you saw here, were big into, didn't specifically say eugenics, but eugenics, they were racist, they believed that the white race was superior, and that the blacks had to be controlled, that we needed them for their labor, but we needed to make sure they didn't overstep their social status, and that we would still be in charge. Now, southern slave farmers had kind of figured this out near the end of their time right before the Civil War, and they began to realize that that having a slave was kind of expensive because not only did you have to feed them and house them, you also had to give them medical care or else they would die and you would lose your tool. And the other thing was morale. If you didn't take care of them at all, then morale would suffer, you'd get rebellions, slaves would run away and they wouldn't come back, all this kind of stuff. Not only that, but as they got older, you couldn't just take them out and kill them or give them away because, number one, no one wanted them. And number two, again, that would kill morale. You can't just take someone's grandma when she hits 60 years old and just kill her and bury her. That's not going to go very well. Your workers are probably not going to work very hard for you. They might work very hard against you. And so it becomes very expensive to take care of all these needs. And the solution is what ended up happening, and this probably would have happened through evolution versus revolution at some point, but did not get that chance, and that would be to switch over from having manual labor slaves of the type that they had at the time to having what we refer to as wage slaves. So people that were slaves in the sense that they worked for you, did what you needed them to do, they did all your manual labor and all this stuff. It's just instead of you controlling and having to take care of the rest of their lives and well-being, you just give them some money in exchange for their services and then they go on and do things themselves. Now, what happens is that 
they are not able to walk away from you because they need to be taken care of. They need food. They need shelter. They need medical care. They need these things. And they can't just supply it for themselves. And so what they have to do is work for you to get the money to buy it, to supply it. And so they basically are slaves, but they're wage slaves. They have a little more control over how they do this, but they are basically still in this box. They're still controlled. They're still under the rule of whoever it is that is the capitalist in charge of that system. And so we see hints of this even now in today's world. Now, today's world is a lot more open. There are a lot more options. But more what you see is that same philosophy and ideology that is very pervasive. And it kind of underlies a lot of how people act and how people work and how our capitalist system has evolved in that people, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, that people aren't as concerned with and aren't as able to take care of themselves, but instead they have to be slaves to their job in a lot of ways in order to make the money to buy the things that they need, and people can't really take care of themselves anymore. It would be very difficult if we had... An apocalypse. You have a million different movies and shows about apocalyptic worlds and dystopias and stuff. And if that were to happen, it really would be really bad because people don't know how to do things on their own. They know how to do a job and they know how to do that job a lot and work a lot at it, work really hard at it and make a lot of money. But as far as taking care of themselves and their families and their homes, they don't know quite as much about that aspect. They instead are much more able to make money and pay someone else to handle all those kinds of things. So we need to move on from the international side of the foundations and get to the meat of what I wanted to discuss about the foundations. Let's start off with a little timeline that I found of some of the more important dates. And I'll begin with a quote this quote is from Frederick T. Gates. He was a business advisor to John D. Rockefeller, and this is from 1913. He was actually the one that headed up Rockefeller's nonprofit foundation that he started. He was the first one. He was in charge of it. He helped him with that idea, and he said, and I quote, In our dream, we have limitless resources, and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. The present educational conventions fade from our minds, and, unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive rural folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or of science. We are not to raise up among them authors, orators, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians nor will we cherish even the humbler ambition to raise up from among them lawyers, doctors, preachers, statesmen, of whom we now have ample supply. So he's basically saying that they will control everything for their own goodwill, and we don't need any, of, any more of the elite. We'll pick out a few of them, and that's it. For the most part, we just need to deal with these rural folk and guide them along and mold them and... Yeah, they're just going to go right along with it, and he relates education to it. So, let's go with the dates here. 1902, John D. Rockefeller creates the, edu the General Education Board. 
At the ultimate cost of $129 million, the General Education Board provided major funding for schools across the nation and was influential in shaping the current school system. 1914, the National Education Association was alarmed by the activity of the Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundations. At an annual meeting in St. Paul, Minnesota, a resolution was passed by the Normal School Section of the NEA. An expert an excerpt stated, quote, We view with alarm the activity of the Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundations, agencies not in any way responsible to the people, in their efforts to control the policies of our state educational institutions, to fashion after their conception and to standardize our courses of study, and to surround the institutions with conditions which menace true academic freedom and defeat the primary purpose of democracy as heretofore preserved inviolate in our common schools, normal schools, and universities. 1918. Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association of America College Retirement Equities Fund, or the TIAA-CREF. Funds pensions and tenure programs in exchange for input on the curriculum selection, employee selection, and department direction. The TIAA-CREF was inspired by a meeting around the turn of the century between Mr. Carnegie and Henry S. Pritchett, the president of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. In 1905, Mr. Carnegie donated $10 million to establish the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching to provide free pensions to professors at private universities, colleges, and technical schools, according to a TIAA-CREF publication. He later gave an additional $5 million to include professors of state universities in the pension fund. CFAT, which was incorporated by Congress, ultimately included in its program 95 public and private universities in 26 states and Canada. 1946. Rockefeller Foundation grants the General Education Board $7.5 billion. 1953. Reese Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives reveals agenda of Carnegie Endowment and Rockefeller Foundation on Education. Quote from Norman Dodd, who headed up that committee, quote, It seems incredible that the trustees of typically American fortune-created foundations should have permitted them to be used to finance ideas and practices incompatible with the fundamental concepts of our Constitution. Yet there seems evidence that this may have occurred. 1968. Edith Roosevelt's article, The Foundation Machine, indicts Carnegie-funded textbooks. Carnegie-funded program textbooks were distributed to, quote, culturally deprived areas. Edith Roosevelt stated that, quote, These young children are being indoctrinated with a pattern of antisocial ideas that will completely and violently alienate them from the mainstream of American middle-class values. And another section here about this stuff. The current American school system took root around the turn of the century. In 1903, John D. Rockefeller founded the General Education Board, which provided major funding for schools across the country and was especially active in promoting the state-controlled public school movement. The General Education Board was not interested in encouraging critical thinking. Rather, its focus was on organizing children and creating reliable, predictable, obedient citizens. As award-winning former teacher John Gatto puts it, 
Quote, school was looked upon from the first part of the 20th century as a branch of industry and a tool of governance. The Rockefellers, along with the financial elite and their philanthropic organizations, such as Gates, Carnegie's, Vanderbilt's, and so on, have been able to mold society by funding and pushing compulsory state schooling for the masses. Now let me read a few more quotes from some officials, some public officials in the United States. First is Congressional Record of January 26, 1917. And we're going to start off with Senator Chamberlain of Oregon. He said, quote, They are moving with military precision all along the line to get control of the education of the children of the land. And all of this is in relation to what we've been talking about, the foundations. The next one is Senator Poindexter of Washington, who said, The cult of Rockefeller, the cult of Carnegie, as much to be guarded against in the educational system of this country as a particular religious sect. And then Senator Kenyon of Iowa related, There are certain colleges that have sought endowments, and the agent of the Rockefeller Foundation or the General Education Board have gone out and examined the curriculum of these colleges and compelled certain changes. It seems to me one of the most dangerous things that can go on in a republic is to have an institution of this power apparently trying to shape and mold the thought of the young people of this country. Senator Works of California, quote, These people are attempting to get control of the whole educational work of the country. So I think you get the point here. And hopefully hearing this from multiple congressmen and senators and officials gets the idea that this is not just some random opinion that I have or that some conspiracy theorists have, but rather this is pretty mainstream knowledge that has been fact-checked and has been investigated And speaking of the investigations, we will get there next. I want to go back and just highlight a few of the things that were read here. We talked about um, John D. Rockefeller creating the General Education Board. That was kind of the beginning of everything. That was in 1902, and that had a lot of impact. We then mentioned the Reese Committee investigation, and that's what we're going to talk about next. It was also mentioned that the curriculum was uh, altered or handpicked or influenced for the schools and that that had a big impact. And that kind of is the point, that if you control the funding, then you get things in exchange for said funding. If you fund a college or university, maybe give them a million dollars or $10 million, then they're probably willing to go for whatever curriculum that you believe they should go for and take your $10 million. So that's kind of how it works, and it makes a lot of sense. We've discussed leverage in this podcast many times before. That is leverage. So we mentioned also the pension programs and tenure programs that were funded mainly through the foundations that we are referring to here, and there is the perfect example of leverage. They can offer things like grants, they can offer things like pensions, they can offer things like tenure, things like new buildings, all kinds of things that money can buy, because money can buy most things. And in exchange for this money and the things that it will buy, all the school has to do is maybe put this one person in charge of their psychology department or philosophy department. Or maybe they just have to adopt curriculum from this specific corporation that puts out curriculum that 
you probably also funded and controlled what's in there. Uh, just all different kinds of things like this, uh, promoting certain programs, and it just goes on and on. Basically, if you have the leverage of money and you have millions of dollars that you're giving a college or university or a high school even or lower, then you're probably going to have a lot of say and a lot of sway in what they do. So let's move to the Reese investigation. This one is very enlightening. I actually listened to a roughly two hour long interview with Norman Dodd, and he was the one that headed it up. And that was extremely interesting is the only word I can think of. In a way, it's depressing. In a way, it's enlightening. In a way, it's lots of different things. But yeah, I'm not going to go over a two-hour-long interview. So instead, I found a bit of a summary report here that talks about it, and I'll read a quote from someone involved. So to begin with, let's start off with the quote. And this is from Charlotte Iserbeet. And she said, quote, Some of the larger foundations have directly supported subversion in the true meaning of that term, namely, the process of undermining some of our vitally protective concepts and principles. They have actively supported attacks upon our social and governmental systems and financed the promotion of socialism and collectivist ideas. So we've talked about collectivism versus individualism many times before. Socialism is collectivism, and collectivism is the state. So... That is something that the foundations are all about because when you have something like crony capitalism, which we have discussed in the previous episode, you see how corporations can take control of the state. So if what you can do is get the state to have lots of power and lots of control, and then you can gain leverage over the state and use the state as a tool, then you de facto have lots of power and lots of control and if you can promote these ideas of collectivism and socialism where you know everybody is doing what's good for the common man and what's good for everybody as a whole and looking out for the minorities, even though democracy is the opposite of looking out for minorities, it's forcing the majority view on the minority, but we just don't teach that in school. Instead, we teach socialism and collectivism in the form that sounds very pretty and nice. So that's what we do. Now, Let's get to what is referred to here as the following historical account from an excerpt in the book, The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. And this is page 46 through 48 of said book. It starts off with 1953. Norman Dodd, a Yale graduate, intellectual, and New York City investment banker was chosen to be the research director for the Reese Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives in 1953. The Reese Committee was named for its creator, Carol Reese of Tennessee, and was formed to investigate the status of tax-exempt foundations. Dodd sent committee questionnaires to numerous foundations, and as a result of one such request, Joseph E. Johnson, president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, invited Dodd to send a committee staffer to Carnegie headquarters in New York City to examine the minutes of the meetings of the foundation's trustees. These minutes had long since been stored away in a warehouse. Obviously, Johnson, who was a close friend of former Carnegie Endowment's president and Soviet spy Alger Hiss, had no idea what was in them. The minutes revealed that in 1910, the Carnegie Endowment's trustees asked themselves this question, quote, Is there any way known to man more effective than war to so alter the life of an entire people? 
For here, the trustees sought an effective, peaceful method to alter the life of an entire people, but ultimately they concluded that war was the most effective way to change people. Consequently, the trustees of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace next asked themselves this question, quote, how do we involve the United States in a war? And they answered, quote, we must control the diplomatic machinery of the United States by first gaining control of the State Department. Norman Dodd stated that trustees' minutes reinforced what the Reese Committee had uncovered elsewhere about the Carnegie Endowment. Quote, it had already become a powerful policy-making force inside the State Department. During those early years of the Carnegie Endowment, war clouds were already forming over Europe, and the opportunity of enactment of their plan was drawing near. Now I'm going to interrupt this reading with a, another little quote here. Commander Joseph Kinsworthy of British Naval Intelligence stated, quote, The Lusitania was deliberately sent at considerably reduced speed into an area where a U-boat was known to be waiting, escorts withdrawn. Thus, even though Wilson had re-elected in 1916 with the slogan, He kept us out of war, America soon found itself fighting a European war. Actually, Colonel House had already negotiated a secret agreement with England, committing the U.S. to the conflict. It seemed the American public had little say in the matter. So this is in relation to how we got into World War I. It mentions people that, of course, we have heard from before, Colonel Howes and Wilson and the Lusitania. I believe we've mentioned that as well. And yeah, so this was around the same time that we're talking about where the Carnegie Endowment is discussing how to involve America in a war and, of course, that war is the way to change society. And again, those are concepts we've talked about in this episode. They just keep repeating themselves. And what's another interesting aspect is that Colonel Howes actually had a meeting with Churchill where they discussed specifically what would happen if the Lusitania were sunk by a German U-boat. And they both came to the conclusion that it would bring America into World War I. And sure enough, as we read here, Colonel House already had been negotiating with England about committing the U.S. to the conflict. And I think it was just like is it two hours or four hours after Howes and Churchill had that meeting and discussed what would happen if the Lusitania got sank. Sure enough, the Lusitania got sank. And you heard, according to the commander of British Naval Intelligence, that it was very deliberate, that they sent it slowly with no escorts exactly where they knew a U-boat was into a war zone, pretty much. And that's what happened. So let's pick back up with our reading of the Reese Investigation Report. History proved that World War I did indeed have an enormous impact on the American people. For the first time in our history, large numbers of wives and mothers had to leave their homes to work in war factories, thus effectively eroding women's historic role as the heart of the family. The sanctity of the family itself was placed in jeopardy. Life in America was so thoroughly changed that, according to Dodd's findings, quote, the trustees had the brashness to congratulate themselves on the wisdom and validity of their original decision. They sent a confidential message to President Woodrow Wilson, insisting that the war not be ended too quickly. After the war, the Carnegie Endowment trustees reasoned that if they could get control of education in the United States— they would be able to prevent a return to the way of life as it had been prior to the war. They recruited the Rockefeller Foundation to assist in such a monumental task. According to Dodd's Reese Committee report, quote, 
They divided the task in parts, giving to the Rockefeller Foundation the responsibility of altering education as it pertains to domestic subjects, but Carnegie retained the task of altering our education in foreign affairs and about international relations. During a subsequent personal meeting with Mr. Dodd, President Rowan Gaither of the Ford Foundation said, quote, Mr. Dodd, we invited you to come here because we thought that perhaps, off the record, you would be kind enough to tell us why the Congress is interested in the operations of foundations such as ours. Gaither answered his own rhetorical question with a startling admission. Mr. Dodd, all of us here at the policymaking level of the foundation have at one time or another served in the OSS, which as a side note is the Office of Strategic Services, which was the forerunner to the CIA or the European Economic Administration, operating under directives from the White House. We operate under those same directives. The substance under which we operate is that we shall use our grant-making power is to so alter life in the United States that we can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. Stunned, Dodd replied, quote, Why don't you tell the American people what you just told me, and you could save the taxpayers thousands of dollars set aside for this investigation? Gaither responded, Mr. Dodd, we wouldn't think of doing that. In public, of course, Gaither never admitted to what he had revealed in private. However, on numerous public occasions, Norman Dodd repeated what Gaither had said and was neither sued by Gaither nor challenged by the Ford Foundation. Dodd was subsequently warned that, quote, if you proceed with the investigation as you have outlined, you will be killed. The Reese Committee never completely finished its work of investigating and receiving testimony in open hearings involving the representatives of the major tax-exempt foundations. The process was completely disrupted and finally derailed by the deliberately disruptive activities of one of its members, Congressman Wayne Hayes of Ohio. According to the General Counsel for the Reese Committee, Renee A. Wormser's account in Foundations, Their Power and Influence, she wrote, quote, Hayes was frank enough to tell us that he had been put on the committee by Mr. Sam Rayburn, the Democratic leader in the House, as the equivalent of a watchdog. Just what he was to watch was not made clear until it became apparent that Mr. Hayes was making it his business to frustrate the investigation to the greatest extent possible. So that's all I'll read about the Reese investigation here. You get the point that... It was so bad that there was a congressional investigation into the foundations. There was plenty of damning information that was found, and it all came to nothing. But at least we did have some important information come to light, something that we can reference and see as fact and look at this investigation as proof that this isn't just rumor or theory, that this is what happened. And we heard it from the primary sources and yeah, basically, the foundations have a lot of impact and have for a long time on society as a whole. They've used war and they've used education. Now, we've talked about war in the past. We've talked about a lot of these names in the past. And when we get into those types of things, it's a little different than this specific episode because this one's on education. But we have seen all this before. I mentioned this over and over again, that you have this repetition of these ideologies and of these thoughts and of these names. We have heard the Council on Foreign Relations come up again in this episode. John J. McCloy came up earlier in the episode. And 
just all different kinds of people. The Rockefellers, the Carnegies. We had, let's see, Robert McNamara came up. Um, just all different kinds of people. And they just keep coming up. And they will keep coming up. You have connections between these and the Society of the Elect, which was our episode a few times ago. And that was the one that started the Council on Foreign Relations, and Rockefeller was a founding member there. And so you do see all these connections between the foundations and the society and the state in general and the education system and the wars, modern wars at least. All of these tie together very well in a not-so-great way. So that's what we're left with with the foundations. Now, I would like to move on to the next part, and this will get us back to more of the way that the education system operates rather than the corruption that is influencing it. And this is specifically in reference to the Gary Plan and scientific management. So we talked about how with the Prussian education system, the goal was to make things standardized and universal and create a good, obedient, repetitive, task-oriented society so that they can fill these jobs that were coming out of the Industrial Revolution and so that they can make obedient and loyal soldiers. Well, the Gary Plan is something that kind of rode the coattail of that philosophy. It's a little different, but it was part of the scientific management idea where things are a lot more scientific and a lot more managed. So let me just go ahead and read. I'll read a little bit from actually just the Wikipedia page just to let you know roughly what it was. And then I'll read a section that I've come across a few different quotes and that kind of stuff like I've been doing. And so let's start off. The Gary Plan, an educational system instituted in 1907 in Gary, Indiana. It was part of the larger scientific management movement in the early part of the 20th century that tried to increase efficiency in manufacturing through increased separation of worker roles and duties, as well as through incentivized wages. It was first initiated by Superintendent of Gary, Indiana Schools, William Wirt. Now from an article that I found about this program... Wirt maintained that the public schools should provide an oasis to instill the values of family, work, and productivity among urban students and produce an efficient, orderly society of solid, productive citizens. In short, Wirt believed that, quote, public schools endowed with the mission of the ennobling of daily and common work by making it beautiful could solve the great economic and social problems of our time. In 1907, Wirt became superintendent of schools in Gary and began implementing his educational values in the local schools. He initiated teacher hiring standards, designed school buildings, lengthened the school day, and organized the school according to his ideals. The core of the school's organization in Gary centered upon the platoon or work-study-play system in Americanizing the 63.4% of children with parents who were immigrants. Above the primary grade, students were divided into two platoons. One platoon used the academic classrooms, which were de-emphasized, while the second platoon was divided between the shops, nature studies, auditorium, gymnasium, and outdoor facilities split between girls and boys. Girls learned cooking, sewing, and bookkeeping, while the boys learning metalwork, cabinetry, woodworking, painting, printing, shoemaking, 
and plumbing. In January 1916, the Board of Education released a report finding students attending Gary Plan schools performed worse than those in non-Garyerized schools. By 1917, the Gary system in New York became a political issue that after the election of an anti-platoon plan candidate, John F. Hyland, for mayor in 1918, the New York schools abandoned the work-study-play project. Some individual comments from parents and principals about Gary are worth preserving. Quote, too much play and time-wasting. Quote, they spend all day listening to the phonograph and dancing. Quote, they change classes every 40 minutes. My daughter has to wear her coat constantly to keep it from being stolen. Quote, the cult of the easy. Quote, a step backwards in human development. And, quote, focusing on the group instead of the individual. One principal predicted if the plan were kept, retardation would multiply as a result of minimal contact between teachers and students. There was also a Rockefeller report that came out. 1916 analytical report leapfrogged New York City to examine the original schools as they functioned back in Gary, Indiana. Written by Abraham Flexner, it stated flatly that Gary schools were a total failure, quote, offering insubstantial programs in a general atmosphere which habituated students to inferior performance. Despite opposition, the plan affected a lasting transformation of American school organization and curriculum. By the turn of the 21st century, numerous school programs and organizational structures that resulted from the Gary Plan movement were in wide use in the United States, including the multi-period high school schedule, vocational career educational programs, and arts curriculum offerings. Now, the another section that I'll mention here is a little bit just about what scientific management is. Principles of Scientific Management, 1911. Published 39 years later, Taylor summarized a new managerial discipline as follows. 1. A regimen of science, not rule of thumb. 2. An emphasis on harmony, not the discord of competition. 3. An insistence on cooperation, not individualism. 4. A fixation on maximum output. 5. The development of each man to his greatest productivity. And that's it there. He says... Quote, in the past, man has been first. In the future, the system must be first. And that was Taylor's idea of scientific management. So we see that we have this Gary plan, and it was very similar, similar to what is said about scientific management that was started. And it mentioned integrating immigrants. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, the New York example is a very good one because immigrants were coming here from Europe at the time in the early 1900s, and they were coming from basically really crappy school systems that were ran similarly to what Gary was trying to, or this Gary plan was trying to implement here. And they recognized this, and they didn't want anything to do with it. They just got out of that type of system, did not want to jump into it again and put their kids through it. And so there was actually rebellion in the streets, multiple accounts of this, where there were strikes, there were parents literally in the streets, not sending their kids in, not allowing their kids to go to school. It was an uproar. And yeah, and so with this, the Gary Plan was actually canceled. And you heard me read the um, Rockefeller report, which is interesting that the Rockefeller Foundation would actually say something negative about this, seeing as to how it 
kind of goes along with what they want. But what's interesting about the timing of their release is that they made this report very early on in this plan's history and then didn't choose to release it until the plan was basically canceled in New York City. And then they released it and said, oh, yeah, by the way, this plan sucks and we've known it all along. And so, yeah, that's usually the way it goes. But then it makes them look good because they actually criticized it. And yeah, everybody likes them. So that is the idea. The principles that Wirt talks about with this Gary plan at first kind of seem good. He talks about teaching people how to do common tasks of the rural life and that he was worried that the urbanization of society would keep people from being able to basically take care of themselves. Like I've talked about a few times throughout this podcast episode today about people not being able to and not being willing to or interested in doing the things that basically promote life, things of taking care of yourself and your family and your house. And that was something that he was focused on. He wanted people to do these things. He wanted to teach morality. He wanted them to be able to work with their hands. He wanted to get the arts involved. And on the surface, a lot of this stuff sounds good. However, when you're breaking up classes into 40-minute long classes where Kids are spending just as much time switching classes, getting settled in, going to different teachers, going to different parts of the school. They're not actually able to sit down, concentrate, interact with a certain idea or concept or project. And you can't really do all that because you're just spending half your time just wandering around and switching classes and getting settled and figuring out what's going on. It's the same with the scientific management aspect of having this regimen He says a regimen of science, and that's where everything is systematic, everything's laid down. He said, in the future, the system must be first, not man. And so, yeah, it's that collectivism that's coming up out of individualism. The quote from one parent that said, focusing on the group instead of the individual. That's exactly it. It's teaching collectivism. It's teaching socialism. That's, again, another thing that we keep coming across. It's all about the collectivist mentality versus the individualist mentality. And hopefully we will get the point across in this podcast as a whole, as far as this whole season one, that individual out, individuality and individualism actually is what's best for the collective. That is true freedom. That is true liberty. That is what promotes prosperity in a nation and in a society. And Collectivism does exactly the opposite, even though on the surface, it sounds nice. It sounds nice. Let's take care of everybody. Yeah, that's great. Let's do what's best for for the whole, for all the people. Yeah, that sounds great. But when we really start to dig into what that means and how that plays out, we see that that's not exactly how things work out. And so the Gary Plan and scientific management were another one where even though it was found that these were horrible ideas and didn't work very well, Somehow, they ended up being a part of the foundation for our school system. This is in the 1900s, the early 1900s, which is when the Prussian education system was being imported into America. Then you have this idea of scientific management, and you have the specifically the Gary Plan. All these things mold together to create what we have now as a public education system. Not a whole lot has changed as far as the system is concerned between then and now. And that's kind of the problem. We see many changes specifically, 
But when you look at the system as a whole and what is taught and how it's structured, that hasn't. And so Taylor was right. The system has come first. The system does override everything. And that's another trend in this whole season of the podcast that it's the systems of our society that really have the biggest impact. It's the systems that determine how society is steered, how we go, what we think, what we do, everything from corporate structure to political theory to the education system to everything. It's the system. We've mentioned this before, but not everybody involved in the system is corrupt or crooked or has these same ideas and ideologies and outlooks on life. They're not all racists. They're not all believers in eugenics. They're not all elites. They're not. And most teachers are not. Most businessmen are not. Most politicians are not. But if you can control and create a system that gives a certain output, so you create a system that will yield a certain result, then it doesn't matter who you put into that system and what they believe, as long as the system stays intact, you will still get the same output, roughly. And so there can be minor changes, there can be minor discrepancies, maybe someone will try to start a revolution or or evolve the system, but so long as the system stays in place, then you will get whatever output you design the system for, because that's what the system does. You create a system that takes said input, and yields a set output. And that's it. And that's what's been done. That's what's been done with our political system. That's what's been done with our educational system. That's what's been done with our monetary system. That's what's been done with our systems that our business structure is designed under and corporations and just all of it. Our current crony capitalism, all of it is a system. And that system is what controls how society goes and what society does and how things work. And you can just have 1% or 0.1% of the people involved with that system actually be these types of people we're talking about in these episodes recently on corruption and conspiracy. These people that are corrupt and that they do conspire and that they do have these goals of some of them world domination, some of them just controlling and steering society, some of them... Uh, selecting certain people or certain races to fit certain roles, whatever their goals are, you only need 0.1% or less of the individuals in a system to be of that nature as long as the system itself will yield a certain result. And that's the way it works. So we have seen that that has been the goal of these individuals, of these foundations, of these societies, The goal is always to create a system, to create a system, to mold a system, to run a system. And that is how you do it. You use leverage to take control of a system to accomplish your goals. And then you don't have to convert everybody and convince everybody, but you can use the system to brainwash everybody to then believe like you later on. And yeah, that's another technique. So let's go ahead and move on here we are going to get into government funding. And that's a little interesting. We've talked about leverage. We've talked about how you can follow the money and that's where you get the influence. Let me read a little bit from an article from Kelly Woodhouse from 2015. This was one where she was studying 
um, a report about Pell Grants and funding differences between state funding and federal funding, and so I'll go ahead and read what she wrote here. Federal spending has surpassed state spending as the main source of public funding in higher education, and the primary reason is a surge in Pell Grants in the last decade. Federal and state funds have different missions. The majority of state funding is used to fund specific public institutions, whereas federal funding is generally awarded through student aid and research grants. State funding goes primarily to public institutions, while federal funding goes to students at public, private, and for-profit colleges, and to research at public and private universities. Public colleges educate 68% of all students in the U.S., and in 2013, they received an average of 21% of their funding from state funds, and 16% of their funding from the federal government. Those averages hide wide variations. Community colleges and non-research public institutions tend to get much larger shares of their budgets from state funds. And even at research universities, research grants have a big impact on faculty projects and graduate education, but don't necessarily pay for undergraduate education. So most schools do get funding from both the state level and the federal level. And we saw that the state level specifically goes primarily to public institutions, while federal funding goes to students at public, private, and for-profit colleges and researchers at public and private universities. So the federal funds are much more broad, therefore have a much bigger impact, and federal funding has surpassed state funding as of 2015. I have not looked at the most recent numbers, but it, as far as the trend was concerned, it just keeps getting more and more skewed towards federal funding. Now, what does this mean? Well, if you remember, there have been a few issues in America where universities have had certain policies that the government didn't agree with, and have threatened to pull funds. This, The specific example I can think of that's most obvious is with the LGBTQ, I believe, agenda. And with that, there were universities that were religious universities that were not willing to be accepting of some of the ideas and some of the teachings and some of the accommodations that the feds wanted them to be in relation to transgender students and homosexual students and things like this, because with the universities were religious and they didn't believe that those things were morally right and they didn't want to promote them or support them. However, what happened was that the government basically said that either you will support this or we will pull your funding. And that's a problem because that's a lot of money that they were counting on. Most colleges are not ones that are making billions of dollars a year. They actually do have to worry about their funding, and they do have to worry about where and how they get their money, and most of it comes from the feds. And you get direct money from the federal government. There is also research support that comes from the government. There's grant money that comes from the government. Not only that, but loans, student loans, are backed 100% by the federal government. So the money that the kids are getting if they're paying for your college tuition with a loan is coming from the federal government. So, so much money is coming from the federal government that that is a lot of leverage that can then be used on these schools. 
for whatever it is they want. Think of things like No Child Left Behind and Common Core as you get into the lower stages of education. And then at the university level, you have more, a lot of times it gets into more political theories and the social justice warrior syndrome and all that kind of stuff. And you get a lot that goes in there. So speaking of guaranteed student loans, this is an issue that I want to bring up and go over just shortly. The problem is that the government guarantees a loan for a student, and then the student basically has the ability to go to college. Now, that sounds great. The problem is that if students are guaranteed to be able to get a loan and pay for college, then colleges are obviously going to be incentivized to raise their prices because no matter what they charge, the kids are going to be able to pay for it because the government's going to give them the money. So that raises tuition costs, which is not such a good thing. And if you look at it with the from a systems perspective, we talked about wage slaves. It's kind of a parallel to that because you're taught all through elementary school, middle school, high school, that in order to get a decent job and live a decent life, you've got to go to college. Now, when you believe that you have to go to college in order to be successful, then you're going to do it. Well, what happens, though, is that colleges have raised their prices, and in order to go to college, oftentimes people have to get a loan. So you feel you have to go to college. To go to college, you feel you have to get a loan. You get this giant loan from the government, and you owe tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands, depending on what you go for. And then you graduate from college, and you do get that job. Now, sometimes you can get the job you want and actually make a good bit of money, and sometimes you have people with four-year degrees and more working for a little above minimum wage, and so it just depends. But either way, and no matter which position you're in, then you're stuck paying off this gigantic loan, and so you have to make sure you work enough in order to pay for this loan, and with interest building and things like this, it might take a long time to pay all your debts when a lot of your money is going towards just paying off your schooling that's been done and over with for 10 years and you're still paying on it. It's, yeah, it's, it's that system of being a wage slave. You have to work more in order to pay for these issues, pay for these things that you need. But on top of that, it's not just rent, food, everything else. It's you're paying for this position you've been put in where you were told you had to go to college, you were told you had to get a loan for it, and now you're told you have to pay it back. And all of this, yeah, is just a system. It's a revolving system that keeps going. It's a circle that it's really hard to get out of, and you're going to be later in your career before you actually have any chance whatsoever of getting out of debt. Now, when you add consumerism on top of that, and materialism on top of that, and You've got to buy this coolest stuff. You've got to have a really nice car. You've got to have a house that's twice as big as what your family really needs because, you know, that's what people do. And yeah, you add all this on top of it, you're pretty much never going to get out of debt, which means you're always going to be a slave to debt, which is the parallel to being a wage slave where you're always working in order to make money, in order to switch that money for what you need. And yes, in general, that's the way life works. But it doesn't have to be to this extreme. And it never it didn't used to be at this extreme. It used to be that people did work and people did buy things. But a lot of things people took care of themselves. A lot of things people did for each other. There was a lot of charity. There was a lot of bartering. There was a lot of doing things on your own. There was a lot of taking care of your family. 
There was a lot of relationship building. There's just a lot more stuff that was beyond going to work, watching TV, and buying a bunch of crap. And that's more what society has evolved into now. And yeah, so end rant and moving on. Another aspect of the government funding in schools, we've got the revolving door policy from all the top universities where you have presidents of universities and presidents of certain departments that basically just rotate around between corporate boards and political positions, being public officials and being presidents of universities and heads of departments, and rotates around and around and around. We talked about that revolving door with crony capitalism, and it's that same revolving door. And yeah, so all that is connected The other aspect with schools and universities that I want to mention briefly is the societies and fraternities, like the secret societies. I won't get into all of them, but just for an example, you've got Skull and Bones is a very influential one. And we've had many presidents that have come out of the Skull and Bones Society, even though they only make up probably 0.0001% of the population in America. You've still had multiple presidents that have come out of that and many different people that are in executive levels and political positions and that kind of stuff out of this tiny little elite group that can comes out of Yale in a one specific secret society. So I'm going to read through a list of a few of the notable members of Skull and Bones through the years. We have William Howard Taft, who was president and chief justice of the United States. You have Jonathan James Bush, who was a banker and son of Prescott Bush of the infamous Bush family. And also George H.W. Bush, President of the United States. You had William F. Buckley. He was the one that founded the political magazine, The National Review. You have John Forbes Carey. He was Secretary of State, a U.S. Senator, and also ran for President against the next member, George W. Bush. And he was the one that became President. So it's really interesting that out of this tiny elite group of people, you have two that are competing against each other to be president of the United States. So no matter which one won, Carrier Bush, you would have a Skull and Bones member as president. So that, yeah, yeah, not worth getting into. The next one is Frederick Wallace Smith. He was the one that founded FedEx, so big corporate CEO. And then Stephen Schwartzman. He started the hedge fund, the Blackstone Group, which is one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. And Steve Mnuchin, who's been in the news a lot more lately. He was the United States Treasury Secretary and very influential in politics. So you have some examples here. There are many more. But it seems like when you look at the list, I found a list that had all the members from the time it was founded, and it says kind of what they did with their careers. And you just see over and over again, a famous actor, you have people that yeah had hedge funds, you had presidents, you have senators, you have congressmen, you have CEOs and journalists. And basically, it reads a lot like the Council on Foreign Relations, where you have all these people that have a lot of influence and are very successful. And yeah, 
So it's just another one of those things where you have an elite group, small group of people that have a lot of power and a lot of control and a lot of influence in the specific areas that influence society the most. And that is the government and the education system. Many of these became presidents of universities and journalism. Basically, how do you get information to the public and the monetary system with things like a treasury secretary and hedge fund managers and people like that. So you get the point. Moving on, the next thing I wanted to mention is marketing in schools. So as we're talking about corruption and conspiracy in education, marketing is one of those things that is kind of off limits, but they get around it. And so on one hand, you don't want your children being marketed to by companies. That's usually not thought of very kindly. People don't usually like that. And there are actually laws against that to some degree. However, it's kind of hard to pass up. If you're a company and you have this captive group of thousands of very influential children who are very impressible and you can put your name brand and your slogan and your image out there to them, that's going to be a really good thing for business. And not only that, but their parents are going to see it. The teachers are going to see it. Everybody's going to see it if you can market in the schools. However, to an extent, it's illegal to market in the schools. You can't just buy ad space in a hallway at a school. That doesn't work. So what do I mean by marketing in schools by corporations? Well, one example is a program that Home Depot did years ago, and that was one where they built playgrounds for schools. They did this mainly in Canada, but also in the United States. And what they would do is they would supply the all the materials for building a playground, and they would partner with a school who would supply the volunteers to put the materials together. And through this partnership, Home Depot would help a school get a new playground. And you would end up with all this news coverage and all this media coverage of Home Depot, you know, helping out the school, building playgrounds, helping the education system. And you would probably have a little plaque on the playground that says Home Depot with the Home Depot label. And they, I actually heard um, a clip where some of the representatives from Home Depot were talking to the children and asking them, where's the closest Home Depot? Where would you go to Home Depot if your parents need to buy something? And all the kids are, you know, yelling a certain street name. I didn't know where it was, but yeah, you, you get the point. Um, another one is future ready rooms. And that is something that's being done in the school system that's local for myself. And I've seen it all around the country and the world where you have, public-private partnerships between a local, maybe a factory or a big employer. And what they do is they help fund a what, what they're calling here future-ready room. But it's something where you fund having a classroom that has all of the different tech and tools and things necessary to teach children the types of skills that that organization says they need. And so, for example, if you have a car manufacturer that has a local plant in an area, they might team up with a school and put in things like 
laser cut cutters and vinyl printers and 3D printers and robotics and things like this and create a whole classroom set up with all these types of things. And the teachers or the kids will rotate through this and the teachers will teach them how to use these things. And so it's good for the kids because they get to learn how to interact with these and learn valuable skills for when they get into the workforce. And it's good for the company because they have kids that are exposed to this type of stuff. Now, on the surface, this all is true, and it makes some sense. However, the reality is that what often happens is the company donates a certain amount of money, and usually the school system picks up all the rest. The school system is the one that builds and remodels the rooms, and the company just furnishes basically a small amount of materials for it. Typically, what needs to happen is the company will then require that their logo and name will be in the room or in the hallway or somewhere close by. And that will, under any other circumstances, that is marketing, where you put your product name and your logo in front of thousands of potential future customers. That's marketing. But if they are willing to give money and fund a program, then for some reason it's not marketing. And yeah, so that's the way it works. And we have this in textbooks as well, where you have brands that will have their logos and examples on textbooks. Maybe there's a math problem and, you know, Susie ate five cheeseburgers and Bob ate two, but it was double cheeseburgers. How many meat patties do you have? You know, whatever the case may be. And you have like the McDonald's brand logo and they're calling them Big Macs or whatever. You see that infused in textbooks. And to some degree, it just makes sense because that's the world we live in. We have companies and they're well-known companies out there. And so to have those used as examples that kids can relate to makes perfect sense. But when you get down to how did those specific companies get in those specific books and in that specific curriculum, that's when it gets a little sketchy. You have McDonald's, for example, had a program, a health program, where they had a some sort of like PE certification thing where if kids could do a certain amount of sit-ups, certain amount of push-ups, certain amount of things, and they would get some certificate from McDonald's saying that they were, you know, healthy kids pretty much. And that went around to different PE classes around the United States. And so on one hand, you know, that's a good thing. We're promoting health and activity and exercise. We like that. However, what's really happening is that McDonald's is getting their brand name and their logo on all of this stuff, on these certificates, on this curriculum on these worksheets on all these things the kids are hearing mcdonald's seeing mcdonald's associating mcdonald's with being a company that helps the schools as well as a co company that's geared towards health and fitness and that is marketing so yes there are many ways that different companies market in schools and get access to this very valuable resource of young minds that are very impressionable and so that is what happens there. Now, the final thing I want to mention is standardized testing. That's one where, yeah, a lot of problems are there. You've got this issue where there is not much of a real-world correlation between standardized testing and what people do in their careers and in their jobs as they grow up. So... Why do we do it? Well, they say that we do it in order to assess kids and make sure they're learning what they're supposed to be learning. And again, that makes sense. And it's a lot more efficient to hand out one standardized test to 
20 million children and then you just have to make it once. You just have the exact same grading scale for all of them and it's really easy to assess. We talked about earlier in the podcast about standardizing education, about standardizing people's thoughts and actions and ideologies and reactions. We talked about standardizing the system and the classes with the Gary Plan and Scientific Management. This is standardizing testing. This is how you do these types of things is standardized testing. Now, what does standardized testing promote? Well, it promotes memorizing certain material, being able to recall it and select it on a test. And that's it. Now, yes, memorization is a beneficial skill, and it is something that is good to have and to train yourself with and to do. However, it is not the primary skill that people need in order to be successful in life. However, when you get into the schoolroom, that is what the majority of class is spent on is testing. Is This is the stuff to study for a test. I am going to teach you all the stuff that's going to be on the state standardized tests. We're going to do five tests throughout the year, and this is the information on each one. It's all about tests, and it's teaching for a test. It is learning for a test, spitting it out on a test, and then it doesn't matter. They don't really care. Because if you go back to the Plato mentality, you can't force them to actually learn anything. You can't force them to care. They don't. They don't care about memorizing certain names and dates and spitting them out on a test. They really don't. All they want is the grades so their parents are happy with them and then go to college and whatever else. And so that's not actually promoting true education. That's not representative of intelligence. Being able to spit stuff out on a test does not show that someone is intelligent. It doesn't show that they actually learned a whole lot. It shows that they might have memorized something or can remember something, or maybe they're good at taking tests, but that's not a good measure of intelligence and not a good measure of education. So that's another kind of corruption of the teaching methods with this huge focus on standardized testing. A lot of this has come up with things like Common Core and things like No Child Left Behind. There's a lot of different examples here. Uh, one of the articles, when I read the Reese Committee article, um, at the very end of it, there is a little quote there about something more recent related to this stuff, and I'll go ahead and read it now. It says, A new Washington Post story by Lindsay Layton about how Bill Gates funded the Common Core revolution is startling. His role and the role of the U.S. Department of Education in drafting and coercing almost every state to adopt the Common Core standards should be investigated by Congress. And so, kind of similar to how Congress investigated the foundations earlier on, you have the Bill Gates Foundation that was very influential in promoting Common Core, which was very influential in promoting standardized testing and our current education system. You get a No Child Left Behind after that, and you get even more of it. And yeah, this stuff just goes on and on. It's all about the systems, and this is the system that children in our society are educated under today. So I think that's all I'm going to do today. This has been a long enough episode. We've covered lots of different things. We went all the way from ancient Greece to Prussian philosophy to the influential foundations to some more specific things like marketing and testing and funding and all this. That gives a good broad view of conspiracy and corruption in the education system. So 
this wraps up our episodes on corruption and conspiracy and government money and education. We've done those. And we did the prequels to those about ideologies of the elite and the society of the elect. And we'll do some postscripts to this with the next few episodes. So we'll do an episode on old world philosophies and a new world order where we'll cover things like Plato and Aristotle and some of these ancient ideas in a sense and the future ideas of what is the new world order and what do people mean by that and what is the goal for that for a worldwide collectivist society what does that look like and then I'd like to do a case study on the eugenics movement and that's interesting too we've heard that come up a lot eugenics is very influential in many different aspects of how society has evolved over the decades and centuries. And so we'll do a whole case study episode on that. And that will kind of wrap up the corruption and conspiracy. And then we'll get on to some more action-oriented episodes of how do we take all this information that we have and all this basically crap we're surrounded by and actually do something good with our lives and make an influence and make a difference and help those around us and ourselves and all this stuff. So that's our plan. That's all I've got. Please look us up on Twitter, and that is at FoundationsPC, and you can get many fun tweets about usually politic-related stuff that's contrarian. You've got our email address. That is ourfoundations at protonmail.com. Send me an email anytime you want. If you have any questions about any of my sources, if you have any comments, any disagreements, any debates, if you have any suggestions, send them my way. You can go to the Patreon page and get some more resources as well. That's patreon.com slash ourfoundations. That's where you can go to donate if you want to give a little bit of money to help support me and my research and this podcast. It would be greatly appreciated. And thank you very much for anyone who has done so already. This, uh, the recommended amount is to give $4 a month. And that basically is a dollar per episode and... It just helps a small amount, and that would build up to help pay for all the different hosting fees and equipment and research and all this different stuff. And so that would be very beneficial for me and the podcast and helpful and very appreciated. But also on the Patreon page, there are some other resources. Some of those are for Patreon subscribers only. There's some exclusive episodes and exclusive posts, but there's also some that are universal that you can look at for ideas for season two and outlines and things like that so you can look that up Um, if you want more resources about the podcast as a whole go to the website and that's at ourfoundations.podbean.com and on there you can look at resources and books and podcasts that i've listened to and that i get information from there's an outline for all of season one what that looks like there is the ability to stream episodes straight from the website if that's easier for you just all different kinds of stuff you can check that out all of these links will be in the show notes and feel free to click through and get in contact with me get involved with some of this information and do some research on your own hopefully this inspires you to learn more about this stuff this is just introductory i am introducing you to a lot of these ideas some you've heard some you haven't but the next step is to actually learn more about it and then to actually apply it and so hopefully that's what you are encouraged to do thank you very much for listening please leave a rating and review if you have not done so already thank you very much for those who have 
and I hope you enjoy the rest of your time after this podcast and come back for another one next time. Thank you. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.